Reporter Kelsey Ray here from the Colorado Independent. Welcome to another episode of the Indie Weekly Podcast. Today I'm sitting down with Susan Green, a longtime reporter and now our editor. Thanks for being here today, Susan. Thanks for having me. Before joining The Independent, Susan worked for 13 years as a reporter and columnist for the Denver Post. Her work often focuses on criminal justice issues like solitary confinement, the death penalty, and wrongful imprisonment cases. Today, Susan is here to talk about a man who was killed in a Denver jail. On July 9, 2010, 56-year-old Marvin Booker was arrested on an outstanding warrant for drug possession. As he waded in the booking area into the wee hours of the morning, he took his shoes off. When his name was finally called, he walked, sock-footed, to the booking desk. But when he turned back to pick up his shoes, things went awry. A deputy grabbed him. Booker swung his arms and resisted. Officers wrestled him to the ground and put him in a sleeper hold. Then, Sergeant Kerry Rodriguez shocked him with a taser. Moments later, he was dead. Seven years later, Susan is still covering this story. This week, she reported on a shocking allegation brought by Booker's family. Susan, why don't you tell me a little bit about what that story is about? The story was about the fact that seven years later and three years after the civil trial, a significant amount of evidence has come out indicating that the taser used as evidence here relied on as evidence. So the taser relied on for the autopsy report, relied on by the DA's office to make their prosecuting decision, the taser used by the city to decide whether the officers who killed Marvin should be disciplined, etc. That taser and the data from it does not match up with the facts of Marvin's death. You say the data of it. To me, a taser is like a little thing that shocks people. Tell me what we can learn from a taser and why it matters whether it was switched out. So Taser is kind of like Kleenex, you know, it's, it's really a stun gun made by this company named Taser, which leads the market and um, is usually the stun gun used by police officers and sheriff's deputies like it was here in the Denver jail. And they have basically chips in them that record data such as when they were deployed and for how long. And that those chips are downloaded and that's the data used as evidence. How long... Is a taser usually used in routine police work, and is that what happened in this case? They're recommended to not be deployed more than five seconds. Um, The taser data in this case showed that it was deployed for eight seconds, but there's significant evidence from witnesses who were standing there, um, because this happened right in the booking room of the jail. It was a crowded booking room, so there were people sitting right nearby, And there's also evidence um, from videotape because you can actually see the sheriff's officers on top of him and all around him and the sergeant, you can see her with the taser in hand. You can't, however, tell how long she deployed it, but she was leaning into him for 25 to 27 seconds. Now, whether she was deploying the taser that whole time, I don't know, but there's significant evidence from witnesses that she was. Before we get too into the intricacies of this case, I want to talk a little bit about Marvin Booker, the man. Who was he? Marvin was a product of the civil rights movement. He comes from a family of Southern pastors. He grew up in Memphis, uh, smack dab in the middle of the civil rights era. His uh, father was close with Martin Luther King. 
you know, he knew Martin Luther King and his brothers, as his dad was, became uh, pastors and so did he. Um, And he just took a bit of a different path. And where that path pretty much started was right after Martin Luther King's death, Marvin, as a teenager and a young man, memorized all of his sort of big sermons and speeches verbatim. And he was able to deliver them with the a tone and a cadence very much like MLK's. And so he became somewhat of a of a celebrity. People would have him at, um, you know, church conferences and at civil rights events. And he really had a lot of success doing that and was very moving. Um, and he would sort of travel around and um, he just loved to preach and he was a beautiful orator. And so he spent time in Memphis, um, certainly, but elsewhere in the South and and in the country, preaching on the street um, and found that people really responded to him. Um, He also had some issues. You know, he had some drug problems and some mental health problems. He sort of had two worlds. One was this, you know, spiritual world. So he lived in Denver for a long, long time and was in very, very close contact with some of our most revered and respected uh, African-American clergy. Um, But he lived on the street, and he would say he chose to live on the street, and he did so because that's how Jesus lived, and uh, he would be a hypocrite to do anything else, and that's where he felt he would be most effective. Obviously, the potential for a taser to have been swapped out is very troubling, but there are also some other things that happened in the aftermath of this event that you wrote about in your story that also seem troubling. Can you talk about those? Sure. So there's a series of events. Um, one is, you know, they they attacked this man and they tasered him and he was basically dead and, you know, dying and then dead on the floor of the booking area. They moved him sort of out of everybody's view into a holding cell nearby Um, And during that time, they kind of were standing around. You can see this in the video. Um, Nobody was rushing to get any medical help. Um, So once they had moved his body in, and this is, you know, several minutes after the taser, uh, the sergeant who actually tasered him, Kerry Rodriguez, as you said, went to get medical help. And that's how it sort of reads in the official report on this incident. She went to get medical help. Um, but the the language in that report was very artfully crafted, and there is a minute in there between the time she left the cell where he, his body had been placed and when she headed toward the nurse's office. And in that minute, what we learned in, in the civil trial and in depositions in that case was that she went to her office. Um, so with the taser in hand, with this dying and or dead man in the cell, She went to her office to put the taser away rather than running to actually get the nurse. She went and made this curious detour that was pretty much glossed over in the official account, right? So she goes and gets the nurse. The nurse heads toward the cell where Marvin's body is, and this sergeant makes another detour back to her office to get the taser again, right? Um, And this is from a locked box in her office where tasers are stored, 
And she was asked, well, why would you need to get the taser again? And she said something to the effect of, you know, in case he revived, um, she needed something for self-protection and protection of the other people in the cell around him. But, you know, Marvin was dead. So after the paramedics came, you know, they had determined that he was dead, the nurse had, and they moved his body out of the jail. And this, this was all pretty, pretty quick after, you know, much loitering around before they were called. Um, Sergeant Rodriguez called these four deputies who were involved in this incident into a bit of a huddle in her office, supposedly to sort of comfort each other. Right after that, three of the deputies... And again, this is really literally minutes after his death. Go to the room in the jail where the videotape control is, wanting to see the video footage of this incident that they had just been involved in. And when asked why, um, why they would do that so quickly, one of the deputies said, uh, for no reason, no reason. So that was a bit curious. And then immediately after they couldn't see the footage because their colleagues in the jail said, no way, you know, you just, this is restricted. You were involved in this incident. You're not looking at that footage. Those three deputies went outside the jail to outside the employee entrance to meet again with Rodriguez and the fourth deputy. And they were out there again, supposedly consoling each other after this incident. But the family, Marvin Booker's family, maintains, and I think there's significant evidence to show that the timing of that second little powwow out of earshot of their colleagues in the jail, literally outside of the jail, happened uh, right at the time when the taser used as evidence was deployed. So you kind of have to wonder what was going on. Um, then what happened is this Sergeant Rodriguez, a couple hours later, was asked to hand over the taser that she had used, and she handed it over, and that was handed over to a police detective. And the police detective didn't download that data for something like two weeks. And when he did, he realized the taser that she had handed in as evidence was not deployed at all the day of Marvin's death. And so he switched it out, for the taser that has been uh, used as evidence, the one that I just mentioned that was deployed 34 minutes after we know from many videotape cameras and other ways that Marvin was shocked. So essentially, the taser used as evidence was deployed after Marvin died. And that's pretty fishy. Would it be possible that those officers deployed the taser when they were outside? Anything's possible. That's certainly what the Booker family believes. Um, and they have been waiting, waiting and waiting, um, you know, especially since the 2014 civil trial when a lot of this came out. The expectation was that the city would get to the bottom of this. All this new evidence came out. It came out publicly in a court of law, but it turns out that the city hadn't. And um, I was at that trial. I wasn't at it every day, but I was at that trial, and I heard this evidence. And I, too, thought about doing a story, and I did actually some reporting on it, and decided I'm going to hold off because I'm sure the city will investigate. All this new stuff has come out, but it turns out they haven't. And if they have, they've been incredibly stealthy about it. The city literally will not answer questions, just the basic question. Did you go back after the civil trial, after all these 
red flags were exposed and look into this. You know, where is the taser that was used to kill Marvin Booker? This is a homicide, right? And the family makes a really interesting point, which is, you know, uh, police go to great lengths to find murder weapons in most criminal cases, you know, murders on the street, murders that don't take place, you know, essentially homicides that aren't committed by their own people, right? Well, this was a homicide committed by their own people. And, um, you know, this, this evidence is flimsy at very, very best. And there are really no official accounts for what happened to it. And what's interesting is the family won, you know, the, 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 this case was a civil rights and wrongful death case in federal court. And before it went to trial in U.S. District Court, it went all the way up to the, um, to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the, the justices in the Court of Appeals noticed this disparity, and they, they footnoted it um, in, their, in their opinion. And when it went back to trial... I remember sitting in that court and I remember, you know, you're, you're in a court for several weeks, you know, there's some eye rolling and sort of body language. You can tell when the jury's not sort of buying what the city is dishing out. And, you know, you could tell that everyone in that courtroom was rattled by some of these revelations. And there's an interesting point in the trial when the lead attorney for the city who was defending the city in the city case, in this civil case, was literally ordered by the judge who was just frustrated about this huge discrepancy in time, not just in the time um, between, you know, the lapse in time between when Marvin was tasered and when this taser was deployed, but also the discrepancy between the eight seconds that this taser showed and many, many more seconds, like, like three times more seconds, um, that witnesses and the video seem to suggest. And so um, he ordered that attorney to come to court the next day with the right taser data, you know, the right taser. I just, he said, I, I need the taser data from the taser that was used to kill Marvin Booker. And the attorney seemed to s indicate, okay, yeah, we can do that. And um, so everyone left and came back the next morning. And lo and behold, they couldn't do that. They, they could not produce that. Um, so they're just these big, big question marks lingering, and the, the family's tired of waiting for answers. Do you, having covered the, these kinds of issues for so long, do you have you know, a faith or belief in that this, they will somehow get to the bottom of this? No, not at all. I don't, and that's why I do it. Um, I, there's really no... I have no faith that they'll do the right thing here. Um, and I've watched this city and their safety department, and no, I have no faith that they will. I think in 2014, when I watched this go down, I was a bit less jaded, and it was partly faith that they would do the right thing, but more than faith, I just thought, well, how could they not? Because this all came out in court. This is on the record. And an interesting thing here is, you know, we used to have a very robust news and journalism landscape. And so, you know, there were the people to 
look into this. You know, the reporters who sat in that trial who eventually would get to this type of story, and I was one of them, right? But between then and now, I left my job at the Denver Post. I'm running this organization. You know, there's just not the time, you know, I would have, this story would have been on my list if I had had other, you know, tons of time to look into these things, but I don't. So without a lot of reporters and, and journalists watchdogging this kind of thing, the city can get away with it, and the city does get away with it. I usually end this show with a small plug to donate to the Colorado Independent, but as long as I've got you here, I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you'll do it. Oh, yeah. Um, I am nothing if not a plugger for the Colorado Independent. So we have these amazingly generous supporters who have offered a $25,000 matching grant um, because we are a nonprofit newsroom. And as much as people enjoy the Independent and read us, they don't necessarily feel like they have to support us. And um, we can't function. We can't do this type of story about Marvin's case or any of the other cases and other issues we write about without, you know, keeping up on payroll. So they've offered a $25,000 matching grant. Um, So we are inviting, imploring, asking pretty please if readers or listeners here could help us. Um, We're at www. ColoradoIndependent.com. It's very clear on the site where you can donate. All your donations are tax deductible. And we are a nonprofit trying to stay afloat in this, what I like to say is post-apocalyptic media era. Um, That's one way to donate. Another way is a little bit more fun. We're having a party, our annual sort of benefit on uh, Friday, July 14th at the Mercury Cafe. It starts at 8 We will be dancing. We will have a great DJ. You know, we're going to have Mike Litwin maybe doing the hustle. And let me tell you, Mike is the world's worst dancer. Self-professed. Yeah, self-professed. He he freely admits it. Um, So, you know, come dance with the geeks at the Colorado Independent. We'll all be there. Our families will be there. Our friends will be there. Most importantly, our readers will be there. And it will be a night of... Celebration of Independent Media. It's also on Bastille Day. So uh, we'll be celebrating freedom of the press and, um, hell, maybe eating some cake, too. Thank you so much for being here, Susan. Thank you for doing this. You can read Susan's story about Marvin Booker, more of her coverage, and statewide coverage of political, environmental, and social issues across Colorado at coloradoindependent.com. And like she said, coloradoindependent.com slash donate. Throw a quick, easy, tax-deductible donation our way. Thanks so much, and see you next week. 